Hello everybody. We want to do a quick little straw poll. We're thinking of maybe doing for a special event, an in-person podcast taping. And we're wondering how many people in the Portland metro area would be interested in attending. This would be a free event and we would just record the podcast in front of a live audience so you guys can see what it's like to, you know, kind of be behind the scenes. So let us know if you'd be interested so that we could get a venue that would be big enough to hold everybody and we will do, put something like that together. So email me at christy at dodgemediaproductions.com. That email will be in the show notes and just shoot me an email and say, I'd be there. Dodges never stop and neither do our listeners. You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. This is episode 95 in our month celebrating all of our Jewish friends and Hanukkah. We are talking about The Jazz Singer, which came out, the second Jazz Singer, which came out in 1980. The director is Richard Fleischer, who we know from Soylent. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Red, and Red mm. Sonia from uh, 1985. Ooh, Bridget Nielsen. Yeah. Danny Bonaducci loves Bridget Nielsen. <laughs> so does Sylvester Stallone. Good little fun fact there, Mike. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the... Timely pull, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we are talking about a 1980 movie, so none <laughs> right. of our references are going to be timely in this one. And our audience, I think, I know. <laughs> is old enough to get all those references. A couple of our audience members will get them, but others might be like, who? Okay, yeah. If anybody has no idea who Bridget Nielsen was or Danny Bonaducci, <laughs> feel free to email and I'll explain. Yeah, there you go. Mike at DodgeMediaProductions.com. Or is it Michael? No, it's Mike. It is Mike. It's M-I-K-E, yep. Uh, it stars Lawrence Olivier, Neil Diamond, and Lucy Arnaz. The DP is Isidore Mankowski. Uh. And he was known for the Muppet movie <gasps> from 79, Better Off Dead from 85, uh. Somewhere in Time, 80, right, and The Arrival, 96. <gasps> what did you do? Oh, that, he was maybe, deep, maybe he was that's deep. not the same Arrival I'm thinking of. I know, because that had to have been much, much later, because we took yeah, the boys. Yeah, I thought it was a different DP. He wouldn't have been born in 96. Okay, it's a different different Arrival, but yeah. we'll have to take, check it out. Oh, this is The Arrival. Oh, uh, yeah. Not just Arrival. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, let's see. It took place around Brooklyn, around the LA area, Victorville, the uh, Venice Boardwalk, LAX, and Marina Del Rey. And the writer of the screenplay is Herbert Baker. The synopsis for this film is the son of a Jewish cantor must defy the traditions of his religious father in order to pursue his dream of being a popular singer. Uh, I got two taglines for you and Udo. Okay. Let's see. His story will make you cry. His music will make you sing. His triumph will make you cheer. Okay, I like the structure of that. Don't think it describes the movie, but okay. Okay. The next one is, sometimes you have to risk it all. Uh, I don't really feel like he risked it all. I mean, he risked his dream. Well, he, he basically... his relationship with his father. Yeah, risked his family, maybe. Yeah. yeah. See, that's why I didn't like the first one, because I don't think he triumphed. Oh. 
Interesting. Yeah, I see it. Yeah. But as we, during the movie, one part of our pause count, you paused, and I think I'm Team Rivka. Uh, um, I, I uh, like his, his actual wife. Um, oh. I think um, I identified with her. I felt yeah. that he abandoned his family. Yeah, not not so big about that, you know. No, you have a big problem with people who you're all about. If he wanted to follow his dream and he went to her and said, this is what I want to do and I want you to go with me. Right. Which he did ask her to go with him, but not like, I think he thought it would just be the two weeks. I don't, I never felt like he shared with her how deep his desire to be a musician was unless she... Do you know what I'm saying? Like, right. It's she almost seemed like when he said, I'm going to L.A. for two weeks because I finally got this thing. She was like, oh, no, please don't. And I think if I knew that was my husband's dream, this is what he's wanted his whole life. My whole entire life. I know. I would want to share it with you and I would go with you. Or at least have a conversation. And then cock block when Lucy (laughs) Arnaz. Yeah, I know. And she gets her eyeballs on you. Yeah, I can be there to go, wifey here. Guess what? Yeah, like, but it's only when they're backstage at the Pantages Theater that, right. that we first see that kind of that tension. So, yeah, I felt like he was not he either, fair to yeah. her, right? That yes. was unfair the way he treated her, in my opinion. Yes. And it's possible it wouldn't have worked out because if she's like, look, I just want to live here in Williamsburg and yeah. and go to the Tabernacle and blah, 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 then maybe he would have had to say, well... That's kind of not my path. Okay, sometimes that happens. But I would say, too, you know, his father, although some people apparently weren't pleased with Sir Lawrence Olivier's performance, but I I kind of feel like with that character, assuming we buy it, that he really hurt his father and and surprised him. Yeah, so he wasn't being honest with anybody. Right. Although I was going to say as you were talking... I felt like she also maybe wasn't being honest and she was fine, you know, like find a nice Jewish boy, settle down. And the son of a cantor is, you know, like next to the rabbi's kid. Well, he's got some status, right? Not a lot of money, but he's in the community. He's got some respect. So was she paying attention when he... Because he was obviously playing like rock music and writing pop songs on the side that doesn't just come out of a vacuum so he was doing that and she wasn't paying attention like but is that i don't know if that's fair to rivka though because a lot of people enjoy their art without wanting to run away from home and make a career of it right so maybe it's 50 50 he wasn't being entirely honest about his desires and she wasn't either asking questions or paying attention to the signs around her. Yeah, I still think she was <laughs> hoodwinked by him. <laughs> team Rivka. Okay, you're Team Rivka. I watched an interview with Lucy Arnaz because she apparently was doing Broadway. Because I don't think, I mean, this was, I, I believe this was actually her only movie. Yeah, I don't recognize her from anything else. I think... On her IMDb, there are some other movies listed, but I think she's always playing herself. So she's, you know, in like documentaries about her parents and stuff. So she was on Broadway and the original director, Sidney Fury, wanted her for this role. And instead, they cast Deborah Raffin. 
who huh. you would recognize. She's a character okay. actor All from right. the 80s you would totally recognize. She got fired and they and they had just hired Sydney to be the director. And he and Neil kind of clashed. And I think what happened is she said that Sydney was a little intimidated by the celebrity and how big Neil Diamond was because he was huge. He had been, sure. you know, singing for a while and he was a huge star in the in the music realm. He wasn't as comfortable in the acting realm. And so when he doesn't wasn't delivering dialogue in a way that was good. <laughs> okay. He would blame it on the script. And so I had read that one of the reasons they fired Sidney Fury is because he kept rewriting the script. Well, he kept rewriting the script because Neil would demand that the script wasn't good. And so mm. they fight when the when the movie kept getting delayed, the studio fired Sidney and hired Richard. And Richard had a different tact. I think he wasn't as and and so they hired Deborah and, and then Sydney got to bring on Lucy. Mm-hmm. And then when Richard came on, the director that is listed, he would just say, I know you don't know how to do this. I'm going to show you how to do this. And he would kind of coach Neil hmm. and he would show him how to act. And he would say, like, you know, this character, you know, it's kind of almost like it's you, but I'm going to show you how to act. And so he had a different tact with him. And so I had read that there were some problems with like the direction and mm-hmm. even the production as a whole. And I think that the way he came at Neil helped him feel confident in a skill that he really didn't have up until now. And maybe some people would say he never right. <laughs> never well, got it. You know, the director may have also considered slapping him. <laughs> some have some have resorted to that. Yeah, yeah. All right. Sorry, that was a long-winded way of... Uh, but I just found that really interesting because I had read that this film had some problems. And I felt right. like... The trivia that I read on IMDb, her interview filled in some holes for me. At oh least. yeah, that that does that does fill in some holes. I think it's interesting because I always have so much respect for not just Broadway but musical theater people because they can do the singing and the the dancing and the acting, right? And you don't see a lot of people who are really good at at singing transition to acting as well and i just think because you know both is difficult to be that good at anything let alone two things at the same time so you know i i don't think neil diamond's acting was maybe the best but i don't think it was that bad I, no i wouldn't that wasn't something. my problem with the film i didn't uh, wouldn't come away from that film saying like oh boy his acting stank i kind of felt like it was probably, frankly more the writing than it, it was the acting so in this case i may have to Take a little bit of Neil's side. It wasn't the best, right? But when you talk about the rewrites, then now we're now who knows why it is why it is. If you've right. had Wouldn't that many wanna... rewrites in the middle of production, yeah. When yeah. you want to read maybe the original screenplay, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I'll claim I picked this film for some reason. This film has always stood out to me, and I don't know if it was because of the music. It was the music, I think. Yeah, because you enjoyed the music throughout the whole. Yeah. As we watched this it this is time, like a classic album from neil diamond's oeuvre right yeah many songs on this i recognized and i remember at the time this movie came out it was a big deal but more the music apparently than the film but i do remember is like i would have been nine when this came out so i must have watched it later so i was at least a tween Mm -hmm. i 
I did not feel for Rivka because I will admit that she was like, she was the boring wife and she just wanted him to stay home. And so I hear you now as an adult and I see her point, but I think I was rooting for him to go to sunny California and follow his dreams. And, Mm -hmm. but it also broke my heart that it came between him and his father because, you know, I understand the traditions and family and his father had expectations, but I think also there was probably a little bit of a rebellious teenager in me that was like, yeah, follow your dreams. You don't have to do what your stuffy old dad says. Yeah, you know? screw the man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm sure I fell into that category. So yeah. I will take full either blame or credit for picking this film for this month. Oh, it's fine. And I had seen it before back in in the day and remembered almost nothing of it. Mm. Like I remember the only scene that I kind of remember was when he shows up at the end at the the performance to sing with his father. Like I remember that one, but the rest oh. of it, Bubkus. I knew all the songs, but the the rest of the film just whew. right. All right, so kick us off. What is the pickup line of this film? So what's the rush? <laughs> is that his father? His father, which I actually think kind of works. Yeah, that that follows your theory. Uh huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love the opening cinematography showing New York and all the different immigrants. And I liked how they showed like the neighborhood with the Hasidic Jews, but then they right. also showed, you know, like the Asian area and those people working. And then they right. showed. The and different... this is, this is a thing that um, was more common, I guess in 80, but I think even before then it really, maybe you noticed this, but when they did the man on the street footage, yeah. it was worse. You could see the quality of, oh, yeah. of the image was much grainier and coarser for the handhelds that they could take around to the neighborhoods. Yeah. But another thing I have mentioned, and I guess, I don't know if this is an edit or cinematography, that kind of image that was on the poster, but it's also the starting and ending title card of Neil Diamond, like his, with his arm up. Like almost overlays, the Elvis stance? Yeah, but it overlays on the Statue of Liberty. Oh, I don't think I ever... Yeah, yeah. I never saw the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, it was in that. I believe it was right the first in the Streets of New York montage. I think it was. They they go from that title card. They they cut to the image of the statue. And long opening sequence. Yeah, minutes, right? Yeah, it was three and a half. Three and a half. It was our first pause count. Streets of New York montage. Long. You mentioned focus issues of that montage. So I wonder if that was stock photos or it was just they told, they said... You know, the third AC out and said, Rivkin, go get us some footage. (laughs) Okay, boss. And he's holding the hot dog or a pizza in (laughs) one hand. Oh, yeah, that's a great image. (laughs) And so it's out of focus because he's like spills mustard. And so he looks looks down and wipes himself and the camera's like pointed who knows where. The editor was just screaming obscenities. There's hardly any footage that's usable. I brought you a hot dog. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Is there anything else from the cinematography before we get on? to a very sensitive writing topic that I have. Well, I won't mention there were, I counted at least four separate montages. Oh, you're right. This lots did. Of, so we had our opening Streets of New York City. Then we had Jess and Rivka making an album, I said. That doesn't make sense. Maybe Molly, Jess and Molly making the album. Yeah. We have, a, um, as I listed, making Whoopi during Seder montage. <laughs> 
And then the last and most humorous is... Satyrs would be more um, popular if... <laughs> if there's more whoopee. Yeah. Okay, sorry. What was Excuse your me. Stooping would be appropriate for our month. And then the last one is very, very comical. Jess is a rambling man. He, oh, yeah. I forgot. <laughs> so he actually... And this goes under costuming. Okay, yeah. tip of the cap. But they give him the, the Elvis sunglasses. There was They're, so many Elvis references. Uh, yeah. And then it, they, they also gave him the, the kind of stupid cowboy hat. Yeah. But then his beard grows out to tell the viewer that time has, time passed. has passed. So the thing, I actually... I think I even put it in my notes at one point, and this is very crass, so I apologize, but Elvis died in like 78, 79. I was like, is Neil Diamond making a play for the next Elvis? <laughs> right. Like, is he like, well, that guy's gone. I'm moving into the spotlight. <laughs> the body's cold. It's my turn now. <laughs> I mean, or was it just the era and that's how we were marketing? Because there was even as I was doing research, he's in this like head to toe red jumpsuit that's like glittery. Yeah. And then in the last the last scene, he's got the, the glittery scarf. While he's performing. And then that that image that you were speaking of is very reminiscent of Elvis's Vegas show. When he does like the you know, the timpani is going and he's I I wish I could think of the song that he That would be hilarious if there's like blooper footage of Neil Diamond doing his best Elvis impersonation. (laughs) Hey Rovka. He had the sideburns. Would you bring me some lemonade? I never saw any of that now neil diamond i did see an interview he had just come off of a break so he would take like he was well known for taking these like four or five year breaks where he would just like kind of go away and be quiet neil diamond so not perform just count his money yeah it sounds like it hey if i had neil diamond money i'd count it too and so he had just come back a break i think it was 76 was his last tour and so he was on like a four-year break and then he came back and did this film and unfortunately it didn't go well i mean the spoiler film alert didn't but the the soundtrack the did. soundtrack did amazing yeah, yeah. yeah so he had more money to count he yeah had to take another break all right so are you ready to step in to some dicey writing oh yeah all right <laughs> So we're watching the film. I totally forgot about this part. I have to say, I would have sworn, gun to my head, that this, that this didn't, didn't happen. happen. Yeah. <laughs> and lo and behold, it did. And I don't understand it, but apparently, so the first jazz singer came out in 1927, and Al Jolson played, is it Minstrel? Well, I think they call it minstrel humor. He he performed in blackface. He performed in blackface as a minstrel performer in the original jazz singer. Right. And it's a story similar to this. I believe he wants to be in the shows and his father doesn't, you know, wants him to get like a it, decent regular is job. Is his character also Jewish or was I, that thrown in for Neil? I don't know that. Okay. It, I mean, it makes kind of some sense. Who knows? Anyway. So it, as as a tribute to that. I they read said. in the trivia as a tribute, the writer or Neil, I thought, anyway, unfortunately, Neil performs in blackface. And I yeah. apologize to anybody who would be offended watching this. And I totally forgot about this part and was shocked, honestly, when I saw it. I was just like, oh, my gosh. 
So we had this conversation. We paused, we paused to talk about another this. Another podcast. Um, where I think it's different, right? Is in the film, some black dudes need a replacement in their band, and they ask him to do it. Yes. So this is not a case of a white guy trying to make fun of a black guy by being a caricature. However, he's pretty obviously not a black guy. Yeah. So we immediately are like, huh, this is a little... And then to give him the Afro, which is something that is stereotypically associated with black people. Yes. It did feel like, hmm, why couldn't they have just had him perform. Yeah. Why couldn't a white However, guy have been in an all-black band? Right. And I don't know if this is accurate or not, but in the universe, right, the yeah. club owner keeps making comments about him being a white guy, and then we have a cameo from- Ernie Hudson. Ernie Hudson, as a black guy in the audience who detects because they don't do his hands, because apparently they were out of time or out of darker makeup. Near the end of the song. Right. De- determines that this is a white guy and a fight breaks out. Yes. They didn't They didn't want him there. Right. So that would support... So it was a black club, apparently. Right, that would support that maybe there is story justification for this, but even in 1980, it just, I, just I was surprised that they would have done that. I know. I just don't think but, we were as aware in 1980. Well... I, I mean, I think we were aware that there were racial tensions. Of course, of course. But I'm saying maybe aware isn't the right word. I, I don't think we cared. I mean, so right. I, I hate saying we, but, you know, well, it, it, I watched it and didn't have an objection to it then, although I was a teenager. That, that That's a good point that we were young people and, and maybe if we did think it was a little off, no one would hear our nobody, opinion. Nobody had. Adults a, around us would have been like, yeah, so. Right. Right? I mean, now, Soul Man. There was an I, entire I, movie. I was just going to bring that up. Yeah. The That even at the time when that came out, I remember being like, hmm, this is an odd thing to do. Yeah. Right? It, yeah. it struck me. Now, maybe if I went back and watched Soul Man, it would have been done with a little more delicacy than I remember. No. I think it would be offensive if we watched Soul Man I'm now. thinking so, too, because I just remember vividly they also gave C. Thomas Howell the afro. Yeah. And it was, and the part that, for me, is it, it's a stereotype, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That they take, whereas the Amanda Bynes, I think it is, she's the man, where she has to pretend to be a boy. I don't remember that being as much. It, the comedy is her being out of place, not making fun of the person she's impersonating. Mm-hmm. But I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of Tyler Perry's work, right? Mm-hmm. He dresses up as all kinds of crazy things, and mm-hmm. it's just slapstick comedy. But I felt like both in the case of the jazz singer and, and frankly, Soul Man, I was a little uncomfortable with it. It seemed like the whole, only humor was in, oh, look at the black guy. You know what? Don't you think that they could have, okay, this black audience isn't going to want a white guy in the band. Right. We're going to put you in the back and we're not going to put a spotlight on you. Or you'll turn around and you'll play your bass facing away from the the crowd. But then somebody discovers you and the fight breaks out. I mean, we just solved it and you don't have to break any. Like you accidentally back into a mic stand, it falls over, you instinctively turn to grab it. And they see you. And they see you. So I think there was ways it could have been done. Absolutely. In my opinion. But also to be fair, 1980. They weren't thinking of that They probably, in the writer's room, nobody really made a big deal. It's possible somebody said something, but I, I just, I feel like, and I'm not defending it, but I feel like at the time, 
probably most people were less concerned. I don't think you're defending it. You're contextualizing it. Yeah. That sadly we just. Right. We didn't. And so, uh, yeah, and this uh, um, uh, on Armchair Podcast, Mike sure talked about this, how he doesn't think there's anything that can be funny about race. And I have a hard time saying that from both a free speech, but also as a logical perspective. I'm sure there's jokes that can be made about uh, that include race. But I think this to me felt like it was making fun of race. And that I don't think is that funny. Right. And so like the the scenario that we just came up with, they could have used instead. And that's yeah. just quickly off the cuff. I mean, right. something else could have been figured out. It just means that the film would have aged better. Right. You know, there well, are some people I, that maybe wouldn't watch this film, especially now after hearing us talk about it. They're like, I don't right. even want to see that. Well, see, I like that better because it, it's still the joke is race, but it's his whiteness, which is the, the punchline. Yeah. And so I don't think you needed to have him in blackface no. for to set up that he was a fish out of water, which was the, the point of that scene. I was going to ask, was blackface not as triggering but i feel like just a few years after this ted danson appeared right in blackface exactly. at a club at the friars club and it was a controversy oh very so much i think i think they that the filmmakers could have known yeah. that this is going to be yeah. an issue that's where i felt like that it's possible somebody said something but then it was overruled i mean is this a case where neil diamond because i could have swore i read somewhere neil diamond wanted to do it as a tribute and is this where he was kind of swinging around his right. status? Okay, so again, the comedy, if you did want to nod to the other, then we have the scene backstage where he says, yeah, but I'm a white guy. That crowd's not going to... And, and somebody says, oh, well, you could go in blackface. And they're like, oh, no. no okay, right. what are we going to do? Yeah. Right? You could you could throw in some dialogue there where they acknowledge... Acknowledge so, the t- 1927 Yeah, one. version. But still not go for it. And like I said... I try not to be super precious about this, but I felt like it wasn't... It wasn't necessary. It, it wasn't necessary because it wasn't contributing to what I see as the point of that scene. Right. Whereas you could argue with C. Thomas Howell movie that that well, the is... the whole premise the of whole that premise movie. The whole premise of... Yeah. So now, so that's... A, we should maybe watch it and talk about that movie in a different one. But in yeah. this one, it really struck out. Not that I was like so offended that I want to turn the movie off or anything. But it but, made us both uncomfortable. Yeah, and I was surprised because that's not really the tone of the film. No, not at all. It, it just it just totally didn't. It's it was like a record scratch sound. It was just like Absolutely. what's going on here. Absolutely, it was weird. All righty, we are going to continue on now. Having, I was disappointed. This kind of speaks to when we were talking earlier about Neil Diamond's character. He said, "I'm going when he was telling Rivka that he was going. He goes, "I'm going with you or without you. I'm going to L.A." Right, yeah. So he definitely, this was a passion of his, and that's what I'm saying. Either he didn't share with her how deep of a passion it was, or she wasn't paying attention. Or he was a little wooed by the L.A. part. Well, I feel like when he gets up in the middle of the night to write Hello Again or... Oh, one of those Love songs. Love on the Rocks? Is that what it one was? One of those. He, record, you know, he wrote it on his acoustic guitar in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. You can see she's trying to initiate some boom boom sexy time and he's pretty standoffish i feel like he was not into rivka and he was looking for a way out oh was he kind of trying to appease his dad at one point and marry the nice jewish girl perhaps and but wasn't satisfied 
And so, oh gosh, it just dawned on me now. I'm so so silly that I am a little sensitive to people who run away to California <laughs> and screw their spouse. Not me. Yeah, no, no but it's, it's not a reference to me. No, but you know, it's just kind of like, oh, huh, that was rough. Yeah, I, I, I very much felt like Rivko was a sympathetic character. Yeah, definitely but she was. Was she kind of like a Bellamy in that you said something yes. about her being boring? She's kind of mousy and right. She has no fire in her. I mean, I, I feel bad saying it because it definitely sounds like I'm being critical of her. Like it's her fault, and it's definitely not. But she didn't help her. <laughs> Jeez. Okay, so apparently, ladies, you need to be spicy and do yourself up, because otherwise no, the guy's going to move to California. I'm not saying, but have a little... <laughs> you painted me into a corner. I kind of did, sorry. Yeah, but it was comedically necessary. Um, speaking of... But don't you think guys do like a little spicy? I'm not saying, like, your appearance has to be amazing, but you can't just be a drag. Like, nobody wants to be around... You want somebody who... You know, like you you share common interests, you share common dreams okay. and goals. You, uh, I'm gonna say, you have an engaging personality. There's a nut for every bowl, right? But I was just more saying, just because she was, you know, not like a salsa dancer or cracking wise, there could be someone who just wants someone who listens to their great <laughs> ideas, <laughs> who doesn't want somebody to heckle their ideas. Absolutely, just, you're right. For every pot there is a lid and she needed to go find her pot or her lid it's possible again that they they were not a good match uh, i i will i will stipulate but i still still liked her character just fine okay but speaking of writing though there was a very <laughs> funny interaction where molly is trying to get just to stay yes. in la yes and she proposes that he can do the horizontal mambo with her yes and he also does not really react. So if they didn't have a child later in the film, I would begin to suspect that he had had an injury of some sort where he or was he's not sterile. Yeah. But she says, I just offer you to my body. And he says, I heard. <laughs> and then she says, would you rather have a pizza? <laughs> and I thought that was a great comeback. You like that? I did. I like Lucy Arnaz. I mean, I always kind of, you know, she's always kind of a spitfire in whatever I see her in. Well, the, she comes from a very yeah. funny mother. Yes, she does. Right? Yes. So I, I suspect there's some genetics there. I I thought the scene was very good and rang true when he comes into the recording studio early on and he sits down. Now, I don't think it's a great way to have him sit at the piano and sing the song. So the English right. rocker wants to sing... Love on the Rocks. And Love on the Rocks is a ballad. And <laughs> and the guy wants to sing it like a punk song. And he keeps yelling, faster, faster. <laughs> yeah. And so Neil sits down. That guy would not have sat there for the whole song while Neil sang it. Like, he would have gotten maybe a few bars in and said, okay, fine, chap, but I'm going to sing right. it fast. So, But it's a great way to try to get... Neil to be at the piano and sing this beautiful ballad. Right. But I thought what rang true was that the music industry, you hit it big and then they immediately want to change you and your tone and your look. And I've heard different sure. artists speak to, you know, and you've talked about it with like David Spade. Like one thing gets them in the door, but then immediately 
the industry wants to change you into something else. Either, you know, you're the cute pop star or... Right. Well, I feel like for Spade and other actors, I, I think you get typecast more. Whereas, yeah, with musicians, it does seem like they instantly want to change you. Uh-huh. So it's like, oh, you're this refreshing new voice. Now be like everyone else. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Uh, so I thought that rang, that rang true for me. Right. But that's uh, you mentioning that that you didn't think it was realistic that the big deal who was in the studio would take a five minute break to let this nobody sit down at the <laughs> sing piano his and sing a song. <laughs> I, I I felt like there's a lot of this film that was unrealistic like that. Yeah, and the mugging. <laughs> I was specifically referring to the unironic bicycle built for two shot. Like, <laughs> there's just no way. But there's I mean there's others like like where she's goes to the he's she's at the boat and he comes to tell her he really cares for her and then there's like a a, a garden hose fight where they squirt each other oh, the hose. Yeah. of course i immediately thought of zoolander's freak gasoline fight accident but <laughs> it was just there was a lot of it that was kind of like that that was really i i think corny and my question would be at the time did the viewers in the theater go, oh, that's kind of a little corny? Or did did it land? Because I think the beginning of Three's Company had a bicycle built <laughs> yes, for two it, shot in it. <laughs> yes, it did. Yes, it did. It totally did. Yeah. Well, that was during, I think, one of the montages, right? <laughs> so you, so we, I, I just briefly mentioned, she jumps in the car of a studio executive and pretends to hold him up in like the worst threatening Way right. like she literally takes her hand and puts it in her pocket. The old finger gun <laughs> trick. <laughs> and, and the guy like literally looks a little scared, and he's like, "Okay, yeah. well, he's seen get smart. He knows that the <laughs> finger gun exists." <laughs> so that was a little, you know. Di- Plus, I think if you finally find out that somebody isn't in fact mugging you, now you're just like, "Get the hell out of my car!" Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He reacted really calmly like, to the. Okay, I'll listen to your mixtape. <laughs> okay, this is how I'll let you audition for a job: is by pretending to commit a violent crime on me. And then I'll sign your actor or your uh, yeah. artist. Okay. All those other people that tried to negotiate with me, they go to the back of the line, but the mugger's right to the front. Now, why didn't they have her do like, you know, she's a cute girl. She totally could have been like. Yeah, she didn't offer. Uh, like, up her body. Yeah, yeah, she offered her body to Neil, but not to Eddie Gibbs, the record producer. She's not a very good manager. That guy from Fire Island would have figured out how to make that work. And then fast forward to the big concert. Big concert. Rifka comes out to yes. be a supportive wife. I like it. A little late. A little late, Rifka. <laughs> she goes backstage and introduces herself to Molly. Yes. And Molly tells her, Right. I've offered him my body. Sure. And they both laugh. <laughs> so my notes were the acting of that tension was good. The writing, not so much. Not so good. If somebody told me that they've been alone with you for sure. a couple months, I would say at this point, at least right. two weeks. Yeah, yeah. And they offered you her body. That happens all the time. I am the last thing I'm going to do is chuckle about that. <laughs> Sister, we're having words. Okay. So let's turn this on. It's here. Was Rivka laughing? Cause she's like, 
awesome. I'm cut you. <laughs> then I'm going to get such good alimony because I've got evidence for infidelity. Oh, yeah, and infidelity. I'm married, so I'm going to wait till he hits it big, and then I'll divorce Cha -ching. him. Cha-ching. <laughs> that was what she was laughing about, okay, maybe? Okay, okay, okay. I don't know. Okay. She's let's... thinking, me and your old canter dad, we're going to live in good, like, live behind the hog back in New York City on your dime, mister. <laughs> I did think it was good acting. His dad comes out, I believe, maybe not, no, not for that concert. It was a little before then. Yeah. And his dad comes out and as he walks in the door of their house, he puts his hand up on the door jam. Where there would have been. Would have, should have been. According to him. A masuza. Yeah. And he, and I thought that was really subtle, but yet well yeah, done. Yeah, it was good acting. And so I wonder, was that in the script or did Olivier... Yeah. I, I, I just really, really like that. You know, it's funny. It's, you mentioned it was really good acting. He's not really known for his acting, though. Olivier? As being so. Oh, sorry. You were so deadpan. Yeah. I sold it too well. Yeah. Yeah. There's a line there, though, from that visit that I really liked where Jess says, like, oh, I'm just trying to find myself. Mm -hmm. And he says, does finding yourself include leaving your wife? Ooh, burn. Right. But I, I think that would make sense both from a parental standpoint, but also as like a, a conservative Jewish person. Yeah. Right. I think I remember this film because of the part that comes right after that. Yeah. That the father realizes that Jess is not going to do what he says and he's going to follow his dream. And he's so angry at him that he rips his collar. Yeah. And, and so he leaves and Molly says, what just happened. Right. And Neil explains, Jess explains that, is it after somebody dies? Yeah. You rip cloth, yeah. I believe. And so basically by ripping his collar, his father was saying, you're dead to me. Right. And I think also, and perhaps some of our Jewish listeners could correct me if I get this wrong. I think also ash on the forehead was another tradition of Judaism for when somebody died along with the, the, the ripping of the clothes. Oh, that's interesting. I thought that was it, but kind I could have like got ash that wrong. Wednesday, Maybe that was totally the Catholics, different. right? Maybe I got it wrong, but I thought that was, I thought there's ash involved there too. I remember, I remember that scene. I think because as a child to have your father kind of basically disown you, like, you're right. not going to do what I say. You're dead to me. Right. Oof. Okay. Now here's, there should be a service only available to those of us in the movie podcasting industry. Yeah. But, you know, not the lay person. Okay. But where we can Niche. look up by, by movie, the Siskel and Egbert review. Oh, it's online. Yeah. Okay. I, like that's YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's YouTube. <laughs> because I'm curious, I, I feel like that scene where Olivier oh, yeah, was, was one of the ones that they, they would have put in, in the review. Definitely. I can't remember. I don't think I watched it, but I think there, um, I will put it in the show notes if it was, oh yeah, it would of course be for this film, duh, not last week's film. I do so much research, you know. Actually, you do an amazing amount of research, which I think is funny because I've tried to spin it like a bonus, but I'm just lazy. I don't do anything. <laughs> I just show up like, hey, what you are watch... we watching today? Yeah. You watch yeah. the movie with me. I do. Well, I want it to be a valuable podcast for our listeners. Right. But I do pay attention during the movie. I try to really watch the images, listen to the sound, really think about it. And my last thing under the writing before we head into... Oh, I do have the montage in the editing. Um, Before we head into the editing is when he comes back after he's been a rambling man. Yeah. This baby looks to, because she got pregnant <laughs> and she's a baby. 
Right. Um, well, so we I, presume by him. Yes. Oh, well, we know it's him because they had been together and she tells the sound engineer that she's pregnant. Remember? Well, she said she's pregnant, but we don't know what she's done with Eddie Gibbs to get his album made. <laughs> no, we know it's Justice. Um, and speaking of which, little trivia. Yeah. That same day, Lucy Arnaz herself found out she was pregnant. Oh, fantastic. Isn't that fun? Yeah. So Did she name the baby Jess? I don't think so. Huh. Yeah. So he rambles. She has the baby. <laughs> the baby looks to be nine or ten months. So he's been gone 18 months. Yeah, he's been gone a very long time. And she turns around and almost intuitively feels him watching her. He's on the porch of their house and she's out on the beach. She has enough midichlorians that she could sense him She back could there. sense something. She turns around. There he is. Deadbeat dad that's been gone for, for a year and a half to two years. Months. Right? Right. And she embraces him and they hug the baby. Uh, he's a rambling man. Oh, my gosh. I don't like fathers who are U-N-O-F-T. Well, and he just shows up like nothing had... like Bygones. Right. <laughs> if like he, you know, prostrated himself, threw himself down and begged her forgiveness, that may be one thing. But it's just like, yeah, I had to, had to find myself. I needed uh, some time on the road. I went out for some cigarettes and I came back 18, <laughs> 18 months, months later. <laughs> well, do you have the cigarettes? <laughs> I forgot. I'll be right back. Oh my yeah. gosh. No. That, so he could have at least shown up with flowers and then she could say or she should have said, You don't bring me flowers anymore. Well, he has a child. Did he not know? Is as the script would show her I took it as he rambled before he found out. Right, but, but then, maybe he, then his buddy uh, from the band, Bubba found him and so i presume that would be information that bubba would share like you have a nine-month-old son and he's like oh crap so he doesn't show up with anything for the kid which yeah. i think would be fairly normal yeah. even if he didn't know kind of what to get a nine-month-old oh. like a stuffed animal exactly some sort of recognition that, that oh he, my gosh this is my firstborn son this is what brought me back yeah oh and wait did you get him circumcised <laughs> like um so there's i mean you would think there would maybe be a few questions yeah. About the son, the offspring. Yeah, absolutely. So this is where I had a little problem with the writing in the film. Well, and you would probably further have problems because of the whole infidelity, knocked up another woman, all that stuff. Yeah, I'm kind of particular about only impregnating people that, you know, you've got some sort of commitment to, to say, to, to raise the child. And here he's demonstrating the exact opposite of that. She gets pregnant and he beats feet. Right. And he's gone forever. Great, so, great father. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they don't hold it against Neil, but that character's not my favorite. Right. I think that the sets played a really good kind of role in in informing the story because you have these tight, small tenement apartment buildings where it's wet and yeah. cold in New York City. And then you compare that to sunny California and she lives on the Venice boardwalk. And oh, speaking of Venice boardwalk, I have to say, I am going to include a sh in the show notes a clip to a blooper. But what is additionally oh, funny yeah. about the scene with the baby is 
there's a scene where his father shows up and in the background you see the boardwalk and there are a good smattering of people on the beach and the boardwalk is teeming with bicyclists and skateboarders skaters and skateboarders and, and walkers and people walking and there is a, a little um accident that they left in the film oh it's great two Two people on the path in different modes of transportation collide, right. basically. Yeah, we're going to make the view, the listeners go watch it. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's what I said. I'm going to put yeah, it in the yeah, show notes. Yeah. We're so not going to tell you anymore. So you can enjoy it. But then compare that to the scene where he shows up right. to see the baby, and there's no one on the boardwalk. It's, it's, and the entire beach is empty. It's so, only her and the baby. Sunset on Venice Beach, and no one is there. <laughs> Don't of make... the millions who live in LA, nobody decided. Nobody was walking their dog that yeah. day. Yeah, yeah, no, it's that's a... it's hilarious. Okay, but speaking though of 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 the sets, but starting with Venice, yeah, this is something about me. Okay, so she has a house which is ridiculously large, and thus I have no idea how she's going to be able to afford a house that large on the beach in Venice. Let's forget about that. She inherited it, let's say. Maybe she inherited it from her father, her father, Desi Arnaz. <laughs> and uh, in there, there's like a kitchen area, and he goes in to take a phone call or something. And in the background, on top of like the microwave or something, there's a, a model car. <laughs> like what a car aficionado would get, like the 130th scale, this is my favorite, I loved this Mercury Cougar. What? What? Like she, that doesn't make any sense to me that she would have that as decor in her house. <laughs> At no point. Oh well, no, she did wear a lot of jumpsuits, so maybe maybe she was into She's cars. She's a grease monkey on the yeah, side, I guess. <laughs> but the other part of the set, which I liked from when he was in Texas, right, is he goes in to get a job at a bar, and a guy says, "You know, play me something like You Are My Sunshine' or something like that." But in the background, screen left on the wall, is a gun rack. Fair enough. That holds like 10 rifles. So I think, oh, they're telling us this is Texas. Because instead of the normal three-gun gun rack, we've got the 10-gun gun rack. So I was like, okay, the people doing sets must have had fun. Or did the location scout go into that bar and say, oh, we have to use this one? I think the latter. <laughs> I had a thing on costumes. Yeah, tell me. So- they never explained, and I couldn't find online any explanation for why this would be. Only Jess. The other characters are fine, but Jess, the size of the yarmulkes he wore varied greatly. Some of them looked to be about the size of a beer coaster, and others looked to be like, like the size of a dinner plate. Yeah, a complete hat. Yeah. And, and every time he put one on, it was a different size. Interesting. And I paid attention. So his father's These are the were kind normal. of things that you need to tell me about so I can do some research. Well, it's also interesting for the listener. Okay. Yeah. Alrighty. Under sound, I'm going to tell you that I found it bumped me um the scene you mentioned early on where he gets up from not having sex with Rivka. Rivka. And he plays an acoustic guitar in the living room, mind you, in this small tenement building. Tiny, tiny apartment. And I thought, okay, I know it's an acoustic guitar, but that's that would wake people up. Like you're you're keeping your wife and your father yeah, up. Yeah, I would say it would at least wake up your father. Yeah. I, and and maybe it's I mean, I'm sure it's nice to hear kind of like music in the background, maybe while you're trying to go okay. to sleep, but I did think about this as well. Okay. 
I've always been a fan of people who are musical. Yeah. But the oh, reason yeah. I'm not musical myself yeah. is because it requires lots and lots of practice yes. where you don't actually play the song, you make mistakes. Yes. So I'm thinking perhaps, it, so it's not just that his dad hears a song. His dad hears him halfway through the song, <laughs> or trying out different chords. And so it's not like music music, it's it's practice it's music. Practice. <laughs> and I'm thinking it's midnight, and you know, you got to sing tomorrow in the tabernacle, and then suddenly he gets up and he's playing again and again and again, like, get the song right or do it when the sun's up, right? <laughs> <sighs> So under sound, I also wanted to mention that Neil, a big part of why he wanted to do this movie is he was tasked with composing and singing 10 new songs for the film. And they were recorded live for the film for the movie. Oh, that's another little fun photo that I will include in the show notes. Because when I was watching one of the featurettes about making the movie, what do you do when you're filming... And you need to slate because as we saw in the film that we worked on a couple weeks ago, even six feet away, depending on the depth of field of the lens you're using, the person that was slating had to move closer to the camera to Mm. get it, you know, so that and slate. So if you have, if you're shooting an arena where there's going to be a concert and you generally will have cameras kind of in the back area behind the audience right how do you slate that and so i found a photo that just tickled me because (laughs) it's a a full-size adult and they have what looks to be what like a three foot by four foot slate maybe standard poster board yeah (laughs) (laughs) and and he had the big clapper so i'll include that photo because it made me laugh and so but it makes sense that you would have to have a slate that big so that the cameras in the back can right and then in my mind's eye yeah I see that morning at about 7.30, they're all milling about in in the uh, parking lot as people are rolling up and stuff. And the AD goes to the grips and says, we need a giant slate. Right. And they just blink at him like, okay, boss. (laughs) (laughs) Which now, I wonder, I don't think they would need that now because now the new fancy slates are all wirelessly controlled. Oh. And when you clap it, it syncs with the recordist. Uh-huh. That's why, folks, if you've seen the what a lot of people call clapper and we're calling a slate, in the old days, you would write on them this scene and the take and everything. And now you've probably seen them. The modern ones have rolling. They have an LED. LED? LED. Okay, yeah, an LED. And the numbers are rolling, 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 rolling. And then when they clap it, it goes right. to all zeros. And, and they're... And they're wirelessly connected to the recorder's equipment. I do not remember the name, so I apologize if I'm not broadcasting for somebody. But there is at least one manufacturer that makes little devices that work with both the sound and camera to synchronize them. So you don't really even need the audio clap to synchronize them in post. And I don't think it's that hard because the creative suite has a way to do that. But I read about this, and the guy who was using it said it's actually super-duper awesome. Yeah. Worth the money, in his opinion. So a lot of this stuff was, you know, back when we had film and all these different things. Uh And now with the digital age, maybe we move away from that a little. But it is fun to see him with the poster board size clapper. Yeah, so I'll include that. But it's interesting because while doing press for the film, Neil Diamond said that he finds movie-making special because... 
musicians are telling a story and he thought it was another way to include kind of a storytelling aspect through song. And he said, it's been a natural progression for a lot of singers like Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, Elvis Presley. They all did it. Helen Reddy, Bette Midler, they were Barbara Streisand, Chris Christopherson. They were in films and it's had a pretty good success rate. So by making a movie, we, we allow our music to reach countless millions because there could be a bigger audience. Didn't go so well for Neil. No, I, in the sense that the film didn't do well, but I do like you said, the soundtrack is amazing. Right. Yeah, he, he's no Bing Crosby, but that's okay. Bing is a Pacific Northwester, so you yeah. know. Yes, you're very proud of. And AFI includes it in the list of 400 movies nominated for the top 100 greatest music movies. Okay, I could live with that for America. music. Yeah, I think that might be specifically for the song America. Yeah, and that's kind of the highlight of the film. That's the one most associated with it, I think. Yes. And then at my last note under sound is I like, I love a good string swell. And near the end, <laughs> when his father and him make up, I notice that the strings like, you know, come in and they swell to right. a crescendo. And nice foreshadowing for our upcoming episode of The Holiday, because I do believe that Jack Black plays a cinematic music person in that film. Yeah. Yeah. Good job. Way to set that up. All righty. I don't believe so, but did we have any head trauma? I have um, (gasps) only in the scene that they have to go watch on the uh, the YouTubes. Oh, yes. Oh, but the... The bar fight there would there would have been a smattering of different uh, people. Uh, yeah, I did not our lead maybe. It, it it was more like a good time old west saloon bar fight in yeah. that there is it's just almost like I it's not a scrum. People say a scrum, but a scrum is a very organized thing. It's more like a ruck or a mall technically. I don't know if anybody was on the ground, but yeah, it was just kind of a big blob. Yeah. Okay. We had a smoochie. Smoochie, smoochie, smoochie. And we had more than a smoochie because we have a baby. <laughs> well, I, spoiler alert, maybe some of our <laughs> listeners weren't aware of how that worked. <laughs> but yes, Jess and Molly have a celebratory kiss at 52.54 and then some celebratory other activities later. <laughs> and then he run off. Okay. In his rambling montage, uh-huh. did, did that elicit some driving? So, yeah, I have a little bit of driving review. Um, first of all, I want to say early on in the background as, as a, maybe a Favreau, but there's a, a nice maroon 60s era Dodge van. So it's good to see them put one of ours in the background. That was nice. Uh-huh. When she pretends to mug the music producer, Eddie Gibbs, he's driving gray 1980 Lincoln Continental. And that, that was always kind of the, the you know, the, the top trim line for the Ford, you know, GM had Cadillac and, and the Lincoln Continental was, so it says to us, wow, this guy is, he's really, you know, he's cheap because he has this expensive car. But then later he has the Rolls Royce, which says that he's really rich now that Jess has, he's taken him under his wing. So maybe that's why he let her mug him because it was lucrative. <laughs> so then when he goes rambling, he gets a, a 65 Ford Mustang convertible. It was such a unique color, so I looked up the paint codes for that year, and I think that was called silver blue. I think that was the color that they had. Mm-hmm. But how cool is he? He It runs out of gas, and he just abandons his new Mustang on the side of the road. I was stunned by that. <laughs> like, really? That's, like, first of all, you can't get gas, but then when it runs out of gas, you couldn't get a gas can and bring it back? Right? 
You just abandon a new car on the side of the road? That makes no well, sense. That newfound wealth, I guess. And then when he's in the studio, right, and he has his little hissy fit, and he goes outside and he gets in the car, and I want to say, always wear your seatbelt, but also maybe don't run down a cop. He, like, swerves directly at a police officer on foot. Okay. So that, big, that's her driving review. Big mistake. Big. Huge. Shall we go to the numbers? Let's go to the numbers. Okay. One little trivia that I wanted to share with you before we head into straight into the numbers, but they're numbers adjacent, is though this movie was one of the top 300 highest grossing films in North America in 1980, earning $27 million. Ooh. Sir Lou Grade, who invested in the movie, stated that the box office results were disappointing and that his company failed to recoup their advertising and distribution costs. And as you reported, the soundtrack album made more than the film. Right. So the budget for this film was $13 million. And it brought in 27, as I said, which adjusted for today would be like 89 million. So the budget was half of, of the gross. So uh, Sir Lou needs to run a better business because yeah. that's a lot of money to well, lose I've, on advertising. Yeah. I mean, I have heard that the, the marketing can sometimes be as much as the film, which just sounds bananas to me. Yeah. It got a 5.8 out of 10 on IMDb. Critics did not like this film. Oh, yeah. 23% of critics said it was a good movie. So 77 were Team Rivka? Very much so. They So that is rotten. That's rotten. Now, audiences, on the other hand, yeah. which I'm sure a lot of Neil Diamond fans went and saw this. Uh, and yeah. this is pre-internet, so nobody... It was just word of mouth from your friends. Right. They gave it a 69%. So they uh, liked it a little, yeah, a, but quite a bit more. Neil Diamond, is a, he's a personality, so it makes sense. Uh-huh. This one is a longer one. you got to settle in. It's just under two hours and an hour 55 minutes. It's rated PG. It's labeled as a drama music romance. It comes from the EMI Films. Now, this was an award-winning film. Did you know that? I did not. Okay. This film won quite a few Razzies. Oh, those aren't the good ones. Those aren't. So in 1981, Neil Diamond won for Worst Actor. Oh. I know, that hurts. Laurence Olivier won for Worst Supporting Actor. It was nominated for Worst Picture, Worst Director, and Worst Original Song for You Baby Baby. Okay, that's not a good song, so I can support that. <laughs> wah, wah. wah, wah. Yeah. I still enjoyed watching it. Um, I like the songs. Yeah, let's see. So it can it's available on Amazon or Apple for $3.99. Unfortunately, it's not on a streaming service right now, but, you know, those things change and, you know, all those streaming services add and sure. subtract from their catalog. Yeah. So... With that, enjoy this month. I'm going to include my noodle kugel recipe. Fun. Because I love a noodle kugel. And I just have decided I'm going to give you a recipe each week. Huh. Sounds fun to me. Happy Hanukkah to all of our right. Jewish listeners and anybody who celebrate, celebrates Hanukkah. I think this will it's, drop before Hanukkah begins. It will drop. It will drop before 
that date. So be ready on December 18th to wish your friends happy Hanukkah. All right. And never forget. Dodges never stop and neither do the movies. Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com. Subscribe, share, leave a comment, and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. 